welcome back to Not Alone, a podcast about faith and well-being. We are so glad you're listening. In this episode, we are picking up right where we left off two weeks ago. This is part two of our discussion on human sexuality. If you haven't listened to part one yet, we highly encourage you to go back and listen to that episode so you can have some more context for what we're about to talk about. Did you ever read books like Josh Harris's I Kissed Dating Goodbye? Did anyone ever give you a purity ring when you were in high school? In this segment, we will be examining the purity culture that emerged within the American church years ago, its lasting impact on the people who grew up in it, and possible next steps in discovering a more positive sexual identity. Here are Lindsay Geist, Michael McCord, and Evan DeYoung. Oh, hello, everyone, and welcome back to another wonderful, hopefully insightful, <laughs> impactful, enjoyable episode of the Not Alone podcast. I'm Evan, and I'm here with Lindsay and Michael. You want to say hi to the peoples? Hey, everybody. Welcome back. Good to be with you. Welcome back for another riveting episode on purity culture and human <laughs> sexuality. Uh, here is uh, here's your standard kind of caveat. Uh, we are going to be talking about uh, sexuality uh, and culture and specifically purity culture today. So, uh, one, uh, we may touch on some topics that uh, you might find a little more sensitive if you're listening with your family or in a public setting. Uh, you know, you could just put it over the loudspeaker. It'll be great. We'll probably get a little giggly uh, because uh, at least Michael and I are immature and Lindsay has the... <laughs> <laughs> Lindsay has the... Uh, oh... Therapist. The unfair role of being our therapist. No. Unpaid what? therapist. The unpaid therapist. Let's yeah. clarify that part. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's it. Uh, so there's your so there's your caveat, everybody. Uh, I don't I don't think it'll be anything too crazy, but just wanted to let you know that. And then uh, if you are somebody who grew up in the purity culture, uh, this could just touch on some stuff for you, for your history and things like that. So uh, we don't really do trigger warnings or anything like that. But hey, just a heads up. It could bring up a lot of feelings. And so find a way to give yourself space to care for yourself if this hits a little close to home um, and brings up, for some people, uh, positive, healthy memories. And for some people, uh, some more... Uh, Challenging, wrestling, and painful memories. Yep. So pull out your feelings wheels and buckle up and just point to all the feelings at the same time. Because remember, you can experience all of the feelings on the feelings wheel at the same time. That's perfectly valid. Two or more is what Lindsay said. So you can have a full feelings wheel experience today. And I just want to add, too, for our um, theologians and pastoral leaders and church uh, faith tradition leaders, like the, the purpose of this podcast is not to disseminate the the quote-unquote right answer or orthodox view about any of uh, these topics we talk about. It's it's about having an honest and vulnerable conversation about these matters in a way that invites people and helps into a bigger conversation and helps them like process some of the things that we've all gone through, both as, as children who raised up in the church and as faith leaders ourselves. Uh, and so the purpose, again, is really to stir conversation and hope that we help people experience God's grace and redemption in the middle of a life that's challenging and complex and sometimes really hard to make sense of. 
Yep. So if you hear something and it makes your blood pressure spike and you think you need to take uh, some kind of stand to stand up for God's truth, don't worry. We're here. We've read it. We understand what you're saying, but just take a deep breath. No need to get uh, upset or your blood pressure to spike uh, because somebody's exploring a complex topic with their friends. So uh, hang in there. You're going to be okay, uh, and we'll get you some blood pressure medicine. You'll be just fine. So that's we, my, we won't actually provide you any medicine because we can't like we can't prescribe anything myself included. <laughs> okay, so take let's an not aspirin. put out put out false promises. Okay, <laughs> we'll be all right. We'll be all right. Oh, uh, so goodness, if you need some soothing music though, Evan will send you a Spotify playlist that will calm you down. Okay. <laughs> yes, we we've got to talk because uh, we had a conversation about. Music services and Michael uses Pandora. I do too. I think it's the best. And Lizzie uses Pandora. And I was just like, who uses Pandora anymore? But apparently, there's a little bit of a of a divide here uh, among the podcasting crew. And by divide, you you implied that we were old because you were going to look up the age demographic of who actually listens to Pandora. And notice he never reported back that data. Correct, and then claimed that nobody listens to it. But it's the third highest streaming service. Second. No, oh, second. Third. A third. Whatever. Whatever. One of those. It may not be I, number one, but it's one in our hearts. <laughs> I think this is <laughs> That's true. Right. Is, that, is that a Dale Earnhardt reference? Number three on the track, number one in our hearts. <laughs> <laughs> oh, goodness. Okay. Yeah. Pandora is the... This is, chart is impossible to read. Okay. Well, uh, I... Let me say this about that. I think it's actually, I know as random as this may be, I think it's a perfect uh, kind of non Well, it's actually turned out to be more confrontational than I suspected. This is called positioning, right? When, when we see a, uh, we, we all have our own standards. We all have our own life experiences that create our own standards and our experiences. And we see the world through those lenses. So Lindsay and I see the world through Pandora and it's bright, it's colorful, it's creative. It's always showing me new songs I never heard of. And then Evan sees the world through Spotify, which is a really, you know, sort of, you know, curated experience. And, and then what positioning does is both Lindsay and I have worked to try to defend our listening of Pandora versus Evan's listening. And the best way to do that is to demonify and to, and to put down Spotify for the way it contrives music into these trite little collections, right? That's the <laughs> easiest way. And then, and then for Spotify listeners then to call us old, do you see what's happening? Like, this is what's happening in society in many different lanes, right? We, if the other, we have to name somebody as other, and then we start to talk bad about them. And because we talk bad about them, it's easier to objectify them. I think today when we talk about sexuality and purity culture, the exact same thing is happening. You have, you have different views of sexuality and, and sexual activity in the best way for us, the quickest, most efficient way is for us to demonify the other people. And mm-hmm. we do that well as church people. We do that well as non-church people. And, and we create this kind of culture where people aren't sure what to do or believe. And what we do know is that they're, they're filled with, no matter what side they are, they're filled with a lot of shame. 
a lot of regret, yeah. a lot of hurt. So anyway. That was a great segue. It. Yeah. There we go. I love it. <laughs> oh. Who knew that, you know, we could talk about music streaming services and then it'd be the perfect segue into talking about purity culture today. You know, everybody's favorite, most comfortable topic in the Christian world. Great Thanksgiving conversation, Christmas family <laughs> conversation. Bring it up. I, I also like that the streaming service that has the highest user base 55 and over is the one who's setting the standard and narrative for everyone else. I think that that's also very apt for our conversation. Uh, speaking of uh, conversations around this topic, um, I don't know about y'all, but after our last episode, I talked to lots of friends and family about the episode. Um, Michael's eyes just went real wide. Like you went and started talking to everybody about sex and sexuality. Okay. So I was telling lots of people about how much I value having conversations with y'all. Uh, oh. I know. So I'm so full of love for y'all. Oh. Um, don't cry too much. Oh, and um and I said that I really appreciate that we can have hard conversations, we can wrestle with topics. Um, and then I was also uh, laughing lots about the stories we were telling on our last episode about, you know, our first experiences with understanding sex or talking about it or uh, sex education, all of that. And so my sister and I were talking about sex ed. And what that had been like. And reminiscing on this crazy experience. So uh, like most uh, sex education that is taught in middle school, it seemed to be taught by some sort of gym teacher. And we walk into the classroom and the entire women's reproductive system is up on the board, um, all drawn out. Wait, like hand drawn? I don't remember that part. I remember <laughs> the visual. It, it was probably an overhead projector, if we're being honest. Okay. Oh, mean. <laughs> I, didn't think, I thought it was some mural owed to woman. No, so it's the shape of the entire female reproductive system, which y'all may not... Uh, get that visual all the time for women. Every time you go into the OBGYN office, it's like there's posters all over the wall. So I see, I have seen lots of this in my life and the gym teacher comes in and she stands at the door and she slams the door shut. And she looks at all of us and she goes, the moose is loose. <laughs> <laughs> will never for the rest of my life be able to look at the visual of the female reproductive system and uh not uh see the moose okay is the let's get specific so right, the I, ovaries and fallopian right tubes I'm, make up the antler structure correct correct and then the <laughs> what i guess would be I'll just say for the podcast sakes, the rest of the bits, not to <laughs> not to demonize. And that's, I have no problem saying the word, yeah, but so okay. So imagine like in seventh or eighth grade, 
that happening as the beginning of your sex experience of door slamming, female reproductive system, the moose is loose. The moose is loose. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Not Alone. The moose is loose. So I have never been the same and um, conversations around this have never felt the same since that day. That's that just, is... I, I, <laughs> Michael, you're still in shock trying I wonder what they're in. Like, what are they thinking? When I can remember nothing from that sex ed class. All I remember is that phrase. Well, that's especially funny for me because uh, my friends and I like to watch the Atlanta Hawks and we had a player named Mike Muscala. And when he would go off and do really well in the game, we would all just dance around and go, the moose is loose because we call his nickname was Moose. So now, Slightly different. Yeah, it's never going to mean the same thing is it, to you. Isn't it interesting? Like, like we have such, un- we're so uncomfortable with the talk yes. of sexuality and our we sexual have to be weird parts, about it. that we have to be weird about it or attempt to be like cover up with some aw- awkward funniness. I don't, I don't know what that. Our Puritan roots in this country go very, very deeply. I, and I think it's none more evident than we will allow on television someone to be ripped apart like violence like you've never seen but the second that something turns vaguely sexual like the curtains pillow over the camera and then it does fade and then it comes back in and it's like listen no yeah you can watch someone be torn asunder you can watch someone be hurt and 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 violence and crime but the second that you would watch someone having a moment of enjoyment of something that everyone experiences as a human Shut that off. Well, and the way that we talk about it, uh, so we avoid it lots um, in conversations, yet today we're going to talk about purity culture and true love weights movement and all of that. We don't talk about it, but we talk around it. Like we have this belief that we are thinking about sex at every moment, um, yet we're not allowed to say anything out loud about that. Is there another thing in life or in like that's our what spiritual I was trying to lives think about. that we could eat that's even comes close to like every single person has some, well, most people, I would say some folks that, that wouldn't be true. So I don't want to be assumptive, but for a majority of people, this is, it's a, it's a part of us. Well, even for people who I guess would say they're not sexual at all, right? Which can is is there they would it's still something that they have to talk with and reckon with and talk to somebody to say that hey i'm just that's just not who i am i mean that's like and then we just put it in a box and we never talk about it except in these like very like we put the hazmat suit on you know like it's it's you can only talk about it in a prescribed way in a controlled setting um and we have started attributing uh things that have nothing or very little to do with sex to sex. Um, I think back about uh, dress code in schools. Um, it may not have impacted y'all as much as it impacts me. Uh, 
I often had to put my hands down to see if my shorts were were long enough. Uh, Michael's a big short inseam guy. He was way ahead of that trend. Let's be honest. As you are growing, your arms and your whole body don't grow at the same rate. No. And I was somebody that was... uh, built very petitely. And so if I finally found a pair of shorts that fit on me and did not fall off of my body, um, they were probably going to be too short because they actually stayed on my waist. And, um, you know, so much of uh, this whole concept of dress was all around the idea that we needed to, and it wasn't explicitly said in schools, but this was kind of the implied reasoning is that you wouldn't want to distract anybody else. Oh, it was from said, learning. It, it was said just oh, like that, said in your just out like loud that. Mm-hmm. at my co-ed public spaces. school. In, in public spaces. school. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, okay. Also for y'all, if you saw a bare arm, did that make you start thinking of sex that very moment? Well, I can be honest. When when you're 13 years old, it's really all you think about. You're a teenager. So yeah. it has nothing to do it with, with the, do the environment at all. You, it's you, just you can look you're a at hormone a, adult teenager. Right. You could see a tree and all of a sudden <laughs> you would think something about, you know. <laughs> And, and all, and it's all or your not be are... thinking about it, and your body right. is thinking exactly, about it. exactly, exactly. Like I mean, that's the real trouble of all that. So, I, like, when all of that's happening, and you are not allowed to talk about it, mm-hmm. instead, those feelings, your body's normal responses to things, the your attractions to people, all those things are then you're made to feel shameful for having mm-hmm. them and you have no control over them. It's, it's not, it's not that you could control your hormones, you know, uh, that, and, and, but so all you do is you're trying to regulate this whole time. And in the end, what I experienced like working with young people all this time is that they just feel really bad about that. That they're terrible people for having these mm-hmm. feelings. Well, and we forget the conversation that we've talked about lots on this podcast. Another one of my mantras of besides feelings being neutral, thoughts are neutral. Thoughts just pop into your head. We can choose whether we put thoughts. This is kind of my super clinical language. We can put thoughts as junk mail in the trash can, or we can save it to read later. Um, But the thought existing should not be shameful because we don't have control over what thoughts pop into our heads. We have control over how we engage those thoughts once they are there. And that was not how we were taught growing up. Correct. That's right. I mean, which is why I have so many people in counseling right now trying to deal with thoughts that are popping up of, I thought about that person sexually or in the moment of having sex with somebody, I am struggling with feeling pleasure and also feeling badly. Yeah. I, I, I had conversations with friends who for years had a, a sexual dream and then had guilty feelings that they were they had not saved themselves for marriage 
And I was like, you were asleep. <laughs> oh my goodness. It, like, it not, shows you not laugh at, I'm not laughing at that person. No, you, but we, I mean, we got to laugh I, well, at it because yeah. it's, I mean, you know, like it's like. We're laughing at how deeply ingrained something can be in our culture, in our faith tradition, um, all of that, whether we fully engaged it or not. Mm -hmm. I think if we go back to like season one, uh, forever ago, uh, we did an episode on death and I think I've shared that I had read this book called the Tibetan book on living and dying. And one of the key takeaways I took from that was that, that <laughs> coffee hold table on. Book. it is, it is. I read it during my sabbatical. It was, it was, it was really, really great. Um, but one of the key takeaways I took from that was that uh, American, particularly Christians uh, have are so afraid of death that that really two things have happened. One, we've trivialized death so much that it, it is death is sort of a meaningless thing. And you alluded to that, Evan. Look at our look at our movies. Look at our our shows on television. Look at our video games and how we trivialize and and lightheartedly attack and and kill things, uh, virtually or imaginary, right? And and then the other option is that we avoid it at all costs. We don't talk about it. We don't we don't recognize it. We don't want to discuss it. And so when it comes for us, which ultimately death comes for us all, it's, when it's unavoidable. We're not prepared. We don't see the sacredness, the importance, the value, the deep uh, kind of opportunity that death affords us as, as humans to embrace each other. I think the very same thing is true for sexuality. It's unavoidable for humans. We are all sexual beings. We, 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 as the advent of, of puberty, we're gonna, it's on our minds. It's things that's, that's part of us. We can't avoid it, but our it's society- part of how we were created. It is, absolutely. But our American and particularly Christian value system is, is, is curated in such a way that we've either avoided it and we do all this avoidance mechanisms. Don't talk about it. Make sure you wear long shorts, cover up. You, women can't put enough clothing on. Um, all that sort of stuff, or we trivialize it, which I think is the other side. Like, like American culture often trivializes sexuality, and it's it's just it's just another thing, like any other thing, um, like eating a hamburger. Um, like it's and and we don't have these more deep, meaningful, reflective conversations about what sexuality is for us as humans, and and I think that's where we find ourselves today. So we're. Where did this purity culture even come from? I know we talked about it some in last episode, but um, I mean, I'm thinking specifically like the true love waits. Uh, yeah, we need a history campaign lesson. that the true love waits. I mean, I remember people signing those pledges or taking those vows um, or seeing all over the place. All of the, um, not around my community, but I remember like seeing in other churches, the purity balls where girls are dressed in the white dresses, making these vows of chastity. Um, where did this even come from? Well, I, you know, some of the, some of the 
I, I think a lot of it comes perhaps out of the AIDS epidemic. A lot of our most current, you know, in the late 80s and the early 90s, uh, th- there was a response by the church to try to reduce sexual activity among young people and unmarried people because they saw that as a prime place for sexually transmitted diseases to occur. And so the advent, I think like 1982, I think I read somewhere, was like the first time true love waits phrase starts to cut bubble up as a phrase within um, particularly the Southern Baptist Convention and Lifeway, the, their bookstore, um, in developing a curriculum around sexual education for young people in the late 80s and early 90s. And so from there, <clears throat> you know, like like I think like so many things uh, when Christianity runs amok or religion runs amok is that it, it generally starts at a place of wanting to do good. Right. You've got you've got we, we don't understand fully the ramification of AIDS and other sexually transmitted diseases. We see a high rate of teen pregnancies, uh, you know, and so the church has said, what can we do about this? Uh, well, the best thing to do is just to tell people to stop having sex and we need to teach them to do that. And so they create a curriculum to tell them to tell this, the students to stop having sex. And the framework is it, most of what the framework around true love waits. It's not about, you know you could get pregnant or you could get a sexually transmitted disease. It's that this is not God's will. This is bad. And you will protect be, your worth. That's right. You got to protect. And this is where we start to see purity. The word purity really start to come up uh, pointing to all different types of scriptural references around sanctification and purity. And so we develop this curriculum. It becomes more and more robust. And then you have this, you know, uh, true love waits comes along um, and, that resource explodes as churches are trying to create pop culture like experiences that tell kids to stop having sex. Yeah. What is true love waits? What does it mean? Like when you say they take a pledge, what are they pledging? What is the, like, what actually is it? Well, I actually have the pledge. It's, it's, uh, let's see if I can find it. Cause I, I and by was, have the pledge. Do you mean you looked it up and Googled it or you have it from when you signed it years ago? I did not. I never signed it. And according to this, I did 84% of people Evan? card and it kept it in my Bible. I guarantee you it's still in my like teen Bible. I guarantee you it's still wow. there. It's a green card. I... Wow. Okay. And I, I just, just a fascinating little research on this stuff by the way 82 percent of pledgers later five years after taking a pledge deny they ever took the pledge so you'll have to ask your question whether or not i actually took the pledge or not uh because you know i could <laughs> just be among this 82 percent can you name another thing 80%. that 82 percent of people did and then they and deny they later said, oh no i never did that oh i was trying to find the pledge oh gosh Anyway, oh, here it is. Okay, so uh, True Love Waits, young people have uh, made promises thinking, Jesus wants me to do this because it will make my life better. Oh, that's not the pledge. All right, I lost it. I have to find it. I had it up. I don't know what I did with it. But anyway, the idea, the, the purity pledge is that we commit to not having sex uh, and I think primarily they mean sexual intercourse, but then as as we start to expand that definition, well, it becomes bigger. And but 
and bisexual intercourse, we're really talking like penis in vagina penetration because this is very heterosexual language. That is correct. That would that be is correct. what I think was implied. Yeah, because we couldn't embrace anything else at this moment. Mm-hmm. I think what really got me in retrospect was the like analogies that were used to describe purity and holiness in a means to explain them to teenagers. Because that that seems to be where, for me, I first started to think, uh, well, that, I don't, that's a really interesting way to describe that. I, I don't know if you had those analogies used in church or school settings around abstinence and purity and but it was very binary, like you're either pure or you're not pure. And mm-hmm. that this was the area of your life that you could control purity around. And it was like uh, like a chewed up piece of gum analogy. Oh, yeah. That if you've had sex with more than one person, it's like one person chewing gum and then giving that gum to somebody else. Yeah, or a tape that loses its stickiness and ability to connect. That was the one that was really weird. I was like, okay, so it, when you every time you have sex, you give away a part of yourself and you lose your ability to connect with others to the point that if you have sex enough, you will never feel emotional or spiritual connection ever again. And it's like we have this all-redeeming God But then when it comes to our sexual identity and our sexual purity, for some reason, he like there's just human consequences that we'll never be able to experience his redemption in that part of our life. And I I was like, this doesn't make this isn't very logical to take this one segment of our lives and our spiritual walk and then say, this is not redeemable. Yes, I I think that's the. Again, like the, the the juxtaposition of what Christian faith teaches about death. We are a resurrection people. We believe that God's power is that God restores us even in death, right? That's that's the theological, this resurrection is prominent in, in Christian theology. And yet we as American Christians are scared to death of death and avoid it at all costs and don't want to talk about it. And we'll do whatever we can to keep ourselves from dying. Uh, on the and, and in the same way, like sexuality is just is 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 so prevalent, but yet we can't talk about it. We can't, um, and it's and even though we believe God is a forgiving, redemptive God who restores our life, even in brokenness or in hurt or uh, shame, the one we can't get over is sexuality. It's it's there's like an asterisk uh, in our current culture that says you know. God can help you in all manner of things, asterisks, except anything sexual, because that's too destructive to repair, right? I mean, that's mm-hmm. that's kind of what we're we're saying. Here, here's the here's the true love waits uh, pledge. Uh, believing that true love waits, I make a commitment to God, myself, my family, and those I date, my future mate, and my future children to be sexually pure from today until the day I enter a covenant marriage relationship. 
That sounds like what's on that card somewhere in probably my parents' house. <laughs> it's it's interesting uh, just hearing that again now, how the word love and true love is uh, deeply connected with sex. Um, that if if we love somebody enough, we will abstain. Why was I committing to my family? <laughs> to, to, <laughs> because it's sexual. I mean, think about the shame associated with teenage pregnancy. And because, especially in the church, right? So you're in a Southern mm-hmm. Baptist church. Your, your sister gets pregnant. Um, now, it's, it's fine if you impregnate somebody else. It's not traceable back to the family necessarily but you have a daughter who's visibly pregnant inside the, the Southern Baptist church or the Methodist church, any church for that matter. I shouldn't pick just on Southern Baptist. It's just where this movement really started. Um, think about what kind of family shame will be experienced in that culture. So yeah, this commitment's about your family so they don't get shamed. And those poor, those poor children that are grow up with teenage parents, like, like that's see how that, it just escalates. And it's all about shame. Like none of it is about you could get pregnant. You could get an STD. Um, Aren't you, they, are they called STIs now? Sexually transmitted correct. infections. Isn't that? Yes, the, they are. They have pedantic. Thank you but. for updating that. Um, you just got to catch these Pandora users up on the new terms. <laughs> but I mean, there's so much shame that, uh, Again, this pledge is going to an abstinence-only concept without really having any dialogue or conversations. Um, that is why abortion rates are higher in like the Bible Belt of the Southeast. It's the area where abstinence-only uh, sex ed is taught. Yeah, isn't that fascinating? And so going back to some of the findings about, and this is coming from the Gospel Coalition's website, which is a, a major sort of uh, supporter and, and contributor to this purity culture effort. Um, they have a they have a website, a page dedicated to purity culture. And uh, looking at particularly True Love Waits, there have been a couple of sort of longitudinal studies around the effectiveness of this. And one, uh, that there's a study found that in, in 2009, the sexual behavior of the teens who had taken the purity pledge uh, did not differ from those who had not taken the pledge. So if you if you were 13 years old in, in a church and you went to a camp or a retreat or something in a conference and then you took this pledge with 300 other teenagers, um, five years later, uh, it's likely that there's no difference in your sexual activity than those who never went to church and never took the pledge. Isn't that fascinating? So there's a, so the very thing that that that's, this movement is attempting to help is not actually helping. And then, interestingly enough, too, on top of sexually transmitted infections, uh, another study found that infection rates of those who had taken the pledge also did not differ from those who had not taken the pledge. So out of out of this, what we learn is that the church's effort to try to control or respond to AIDS and other sexually transmitted infections 
and the increase in teenage pregnancy and sexual activity among young people, their attempts to kind of to, to stamp that down was to create the purity culture, to create this, this language about waiting and true love waits and kissing, dating goodbye. And, uh, you know, which leads to all kinds of like very minute control about what kids wear, about whether they can hold hands, about what they do. You remember all the side hugs or people oh, yes. still do that where That's it's right. like, do not hug somebody directly because you would not want your body parts and reproductive parts to touch somebody else's because like that could make you lust after somebody else. That's right. So we create this entire system of rules. I actually, the thought of sex pops into my head more when somebody side hugs me because it is so awkward that I start thinking about how much they're trying to avoid potentially thinking about me sexually like it's just so weird it's almost like it's prevalent in our brains and by trying to not focus on it and build habits around it you just end up focusing on it more the analogy that for me was the penultimate purity analogy was during this talk and it had to be youth group where someone was on stage and they had a can of coke and they, they were like, who wants this Coke? Because it was the South and, you know, the soda. And everyone's like, oh, yeah, if it, yeah, if it, I got if, if it had been Pepsi, nobody would be like, oh, no, 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 that's good. Uh, it's like, a, we're like, yeah, like yeah, a Spotify we want, listener. We want this Coke. <laughs> this is great. And so they open it up and they drink it. They're like, this Coke is delicious. It's never mind the fact that we were never talking about how bad sodas were. Uh, <laughs> this Coke is delicious. How many of you want to drink this Coke? And everybody's like, yeah, 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 we want to drink that Coke. Because we think that we're going to, you know, they're like throwing stuff on the stage, off the stage. Like you get snacks as like a prize, you know. And then they go, how many of you want to drink this Coke if I put a drop of pee in it? Just one drop. Oh. And everybody is like, oh, no. Oh, no, I don't want to drink pee. I'm, I'm sorry, friends. This is taking a turn. But I <laughs> this was, this, this was is said- worse. Than, again, Somewhat of a food analogy that has taken a turn Got to the <laughs> And then they said, that's like, that's like you and sex. That when Why you, is there a P involved in sex? Like in that con... I don't... You are okay. pure. And then when you have sex, there's, it's like you're offering yourself like a Coke with a drop of pee. It still tastes like Coke, but in the back of your mind, you know there's pee in okay, it. Okay, so again... The church has gone to great lengths to try to respond to teenagers. I know this this is this is radical, but teenagers want to have sex. And what we wanted to do was to create a culture that got teenagers not to have sex. Turns out it didn't work. Teenagers still had sex. And, and it now also they just did feel pre- bad about it. <laughs> and right. aren't aren't the doing it in protected ways. Right. The one thing it did was create an enormous amount of shame. Mm-hmm. And depression and anxiety and lack because, of education and lack of education, uh, a basic functional scientific based education, and it creates uh, a distrust in the church later on that leads to an exodus of young adults in the church. Now, it's, I'll, it's, I'll also say it leads to a distrust in our own bodies. Yeah, right. Because fast forward, if you have twenty years of shame. And then you mm-hmm. get ma- about sex and then you get married and you're supposed to function well. I, it, that'd be like, that would be like 
me eating donuts every day and then thinking I can just go run a marathon and everything's going to be all right. Yeah. You know, and we expect everything to be okay. And it's not. And we've seen sexual activity among young adults plummet, particularly young married uh, individuals. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's fascinating how, and I, and again, I want to go back. I don't believe, I don't believe these early, these, these individuals were attempting to do harm. I think they thought they were going to do good, but what we don't realize is that when we, we use shame as a tool, it -hmm. will never do good. Shame is not, shame is a weapon. Shame is not a tool. I mean, even one of the most influential books in all of this, I Kissed Dating Goodbye. Um, The author has now come out years later and said, I harmed a lot of people from that book. And the intention of the book was not harm, uh, but it really created an entire culture of shame. I there was a big part of that movement that celebrated going on a date with Jesus instead of going out with your friends on Friday night. Did you guys ever hear that analogy in that story? I hadn't heard that analogy. I mean, I heard that Jesus is my boyfriend. Yeah, analogy. that always really was a weird, was weird. line for me. Uh, <laughs> I was like, "There's two counts that you could be real mad at me if I use this analogy." That I'm dating Jesus, but it was great for the girls. Uh, but then if, but you not, know, it was really a double whammy of you shouldn't. I, it, yeah. I just don't think of, it was just, I guess weird. I, I, yeah, I don't like to, I mean, men always have to deal with the fact that in scripture that we're described as the bride of Christ. Right. And so, you know, as a boy, you're like, Whoa, what does that mean? But there's this kind of nature to that, like, traditional view of marriage, which is talked about a lot uh, in scripture, (laughs) that has to do with how our relationship with like the church and Jesus and, and that, and, but for some reason we don't unpack that as much. And this idea that someone would stay home on a Friday night and read their Bible and like do a devotional instead of going out with their friends, I was kind of like, that person also just kind of might be introverted. Like maybe staying at home and reading on a Friday night is very like what they want to do. But like, that's not, I can do that at other times. I don't understand why this is like the ultimate celebration is somebody not going out with their friends. And it's a, it, and what it says is that you have to, it, it is, I guess it's Puritan at its core, but you have to deny, like finding God when you deny yourself, you will guaranteed find God. Like if you mm-hmm. if you get if you just run away from the things that you that you're inclined to, that you feel drawn to, that God exists in that space, and that's like a guarantee that you're going to be more pure, that you're going to be more holy, and it's this elevation of personal holiness, which I think when you read the gospel is relatively dismantled pretty quickly. That your personal holiness has anything to do with really anything, because Jesus continually reinforces that, listen, here's the deal. You've you've all made mistakes. You're all falling short. Like, literally everyone, and it's reframed. Every time we try and set a rule or a boundary, Jesus kind of jukes it the other way, right? It's like, hey, what do we do? And he's like, hey, listen, if you've even looked at a woman 
and and had a lustful thought you're like you're that's it like there's nothing there's no in between but then we read that and go okay i better set a long complicated obtrusive rule set so that i could stay pure and that's what we derive from that scripture where he goes don't stone this woman I mean, one of those rules that has come out of that is what we call uh, lovingly the Billy Graham rule, that you aren't to be alone with somebody of the opposite sex, especially uh, men should not be alone. There should always be somebody else involved. Like, I could never ride in the car with one of you individually without both of you being there as a form of protection to make sure that my lustful thoughts don't take over and I just go wild and crazy. <laughs> Michael's kind of chuckling at me right now as <laughs> I'm thinking mean, about it, all this because it sounds kind of wild, like that we can't, It to me, it is wild that we cannot be friends and without, uh, having this fear that it's like sex is going to pop up and surprise me. Um, it could it's if just it's gonna very happen. repressed. <laughs> I mean, maybe, but yeah. Well, why is it on you? <laughs> well, also that is, well, that is the thing that like women are held to this. Uh, I mean, men as well signing this uh, purity pledge but in some ways women are expected to enforce it. Like well, I even, I even think about early in my dating life that we it, are that sexual was beasts. Yes. That's why. I mean, we have, we see it's not only you got these gender roles too, right? So we, you, you are as, as a woman, the last resort to hold back, the sexual purity mm -hmm. of these sexual beasts that men are that just that, you know, every time they go out, they're just on the hunt, you know? And, and so it, it's just, it's just fascinating to me. Like, and this is what happens in scripture too. I mean, if you look at Leviticus, you, you see this like expansion of law and there's just so much, it, it's, it's really what we call sense making, right? That, that humans try to make sense of what's happening to them in the world and they had these encounters with the creator and with the, with the with the religious community and then they try to make sense of it with laws and rules and and like evan said you know the, it, it seems to me that what god's trying to say to us listen this is on all of us we're going to experience this it, it, it's just part of the struggle of the reality of being human and being sexual beings and 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 understand that that's normal and that i'm a god who's going to redeem you and and guide you and and uh, offer grace to you in life and we take that story and then we say okay we got to write lots of laws and rules around this to try to control our feelings um you know it's the very opposite of what i think is trying to be communicated how do we get from a book riddled with sexual content like, I mean, in church, I mean, all of the guys knew where all the sexual scriptures were. Like it, it, it is like, like entire and they song stick out in Solomon. your mind. Uh, Do what? The entire song of Solomon. Of oh, how? 
Song of Solomon, the Old Testament. I mean, the whole Bible has interactions with human sexuality mm-hmm. that have consequences and are wrong. And then, and, and, and it talks about what is good and right. And, but we, how did we get from there to purity culture? I just don't. It's is it consequence management? Like it just seems like such an interesting, very tight, colored lens to have to look through the scripture to end up where we've ended up in American Christianity. So, what do you think we do about this? I think that would be the the interesting. It's it's fine to be critical and observe these kinds of critiques about this culture that we've found ourselves in and to to recognize the hurt that it's created among people and how it affects relationships and marriages and sexuality um sexual identity among uh young people well among all people but particularly those who grew up in the 90s um what can we do that would be healthy a healthier response to sexuality in in the church i'm looking to you social worker teach us (laughs) Um, I mean, step one, talking about it. Uh, nope, can't uh, do that. Too far. I think about, uh, do y'all remember uh, Rob Bell's book, Sex God? I do. Mm-hmm. That it had was that one of the soft cardboard cover. Oh, that was one of the first books that I read that really... Uh, in some ways talked about our sexual identity and our sexuality as something that wasn't shameful. And I remember it being incredibly powerful. I cannot remember all the details of the book. I'd need to go back and read it again. I just remember it being a pivotal moment uh, because like it was about kind of embracing my body sexually instead of shaming it. Um, That didn't mean, you know, go out and have sex with every person that you ever met. It's just saying like, if I have a thought or a desire that in and of itself is not bad. Um, I think that uh, we need to have conversations like uh, that if we believe that sex is a holy moment of connection with one another. Uh, What would it be like to talk about that more? Um, And not saying, not hyping it up. Like it's such an incredible spiritual high that everybody wants to be having it, but talking about it in a beautiful reverent way. Um that instead of shaming, we talk about the beautiful moment and the choice that's involved to get to that, but also how incredibly vulnerable and intimate that moment is. I just wish that we talked more about choice um, and choice as empowering instead of choice as avoiding. Ooh, choice as empowering as compared to choice as avoidance. 
You know, I, I will I will say one of the narratives that was discussed around human sexuality that I think was a lot more healthy in that same time was the question around like lines and boundaries, how far is too far. That was a big, mm-hmm. big youth group conversation was how far is too far. And uh, it was posed in a way to say that it's not about avoidance of sin. It's not about figuring out where the line is and then making sure you stay behind it. The, the, the real nature of the gospel is understanding sanctification and pursuing that and spending our energy pursuing God and his calling and being constantly renewed and refreshed and learning rather than a line because if we're if we're chasing after god and we're spending energy doing that that the lines like our actions will will start to follow more than if we just try and dance around consequences and lines and um that's a really interesting phrasing from that same era of discussion around human sexuality that when i heard it i was like that makes some more sense that it, it, obviously, there's no perfect analogy for human sexuality, but this idea that it's a there's an energy creating and pursuing, like you talked about, Lindsay, rather than just avoidance, is I think can be helpful in some senses. Well, I, I think what you kind of bring up for me is that. The concept of sin is, I think, often misunderstood from my perspective. Others might have varying perspectives about the construct of sin. But ultimately, these things that are identified as sinful in Scripture and in religious teaching are generally things that have the potential to cause harm, either to ourselves or to others. And the reason we, we've developed them and identified them as sin is they, they are things that could potentially hurt us or hurt others. And so we want to try to abstain from those things so that we can avoid hurt uh, either of ourselves or others. But what has evolved from that understanding is that somehow sin is that, that relationship with our creator is some kind of transactional relationship mm. that it's at the end of the day, it's how many times were you right versus how many times were you wrong? And that's going to weigh your ultimate judgment about your life. And, and what I think is most damaging about all this is it, it, it renders God into some commodity driven banking system, you know, and it's, it's, it lacks relationship. It, it lacks authenticity and vulnerability and connection with each other and realizing that what we do influences our lives as well as those around us. And so everything becomes sort of disconnected and it becomes lifeless. And I think that's some of what we're experiencing in religious groups in America today is that, that faith has become lifeless. It's become transactional like everything else. And that, that relationship with God is some kind of commodity that can be traded and like, like coffee and chocolate and oil and those kinds of things. And, and it, it's, it's placed us in this weird place that 
dehumanizes us and demystifies our creator. I'm really thankful that I'm not judged on my opinions and actions as a teenager <laughs> for, for, for my entire life. But I you do know, wonder. In a season when we were all uh, trying to figure ourselves out and our beliefs and our lives and our choices and our independence, you know, individuation, your favorite word. Oh, I love individuation. Well, and I just, there's, I think I want to be transparent too. You know, we're looking at this in like a lens of what we experienced, but like this is not a high and mighty figured it out. Like, the, I mean, sexuality is constant, right? And and the way that I interact with sexuality now is very different than I did in my twenties and then as a teenager. But what I would like to think is that it's a journey to health and greater pursuit and understanding of, of what it, what that is, what the role that it has in my, in the spiritual realm with my soul, with my emotions. And I, I hope that I have an even healthier view of sexuality in my forties than I do in my thirties, right? Like that's the hope is that I'm, I'm continuously growing and improving as a person. So it's just tough that we set this stance in this line and decided to be the morality police as the church for this one subset of issues for the way that we're going to universally judge everyone else that exists, including our own people who are in the church. I mean, these are people in the church and we're managing their garb and their attitudes and those kind of things. And I I just don't think that it's really fair to the nature of humanity and the curiosity of humans to just say this bad, this good, good luck and be the morality police around one specific subset of issues and then completely ignore all of the other things that are prevalent in our culture that we don't feel like we need to address. But that's, that's what we're good at. And, and we're not alone. I mean, we've been doing this, this, this is the same story over and over and over again. Now I'm not trying to excuse our bad behavior, but I just want to set that, you know, in the same way that we can't avoid sexuality as humans, we can't. No matter how hard we try to repress it, not talk about it, put rules around it, it exists. It is there. It is good. It's part of who we are. We can't do anything about it. In the same way, I, I don't know that we could do much about our desire to try to control things and mm -hmm. try to create systems that, that control others to fit into our framework of understanding. And so, I mean, I, I, the, this, the stuff that the church has done around purity culture is nothing new. It has new names, you know, from the nineties that, and, and it has unique damage that it's done to our current culture. Um, but it's not abnormal when looking at history and, and scripture. So I think to that point, Lindsay's challenge to us really is what is, is important is what do we, how do we move forward? And that is, I think we have to have start having these awkward conversations and the the only way we can move forward and be healthier sexuality in our sexuality and our sexual experiences is just to, especially for parents to be open with their kids uh, for churches to set places, set the table for conversations where people can 
be vulnerable and honest about what sex means to them and in their experiences, because our kids are looking toward for us to help them and, and guide them. And to help us have this conversations too about context that um, how this is something that, you know, we may be wrestling with, but it looks really different. What lens we're looking at it through um, that, it looks different if you get married at 22 than if you're single in your late 30s. That how this has impacted you and choices now and how you view the world um, are entirely different dialogues. But what purity culture does, has done, is that it's erased some of that conversation. And so I encourage us to be vulnerable and with one another and start talking about how that impacts uh, how we view ourselves, how we view our bodies, how we view other people. Um, and I want to say that if you are somebody that carries a lot of shame, uh, from, uh, that very strong season of the church's, uh, history when the true love weights movement was, uh, incredibly, uh, pervasive. Uh, there's a couple really great books out there that have started doing work, unpacking it. Um, Linda K. Klein wrote a book called Pure that she did years and years of research around uh, people and their experience with purity culture and how they have to kind of uh, undo, address, or work work with those beliefs. Um, another one uh, is by Nadia Boltz Weber. It is, um, uh, if you know anything about Nadia Boltz Weber, she uh, does not hold back her thoughts uh, and says them in the most blunt and beautiful and raw, helpful way. Um, and she wrote a book called Shameless. And so both of those books are ones that if you might not be ready to dialogue with other people about mm -hmm. this topic or don't have a community to do some of this dialoguing with, um, I encourage you to pick up those books. Um, I also want to say that as we're wrapping up, um, that even the three of us, uh, that we have conversations like this for a living all the time and prepping for this conversation today. Uh, there were moments that us talking to one another that you could see our own um, our own shame or uh, histories with the church and everything coming in as we were trying to figure out how vulnerable we were even before we started recording with one another hmm. about this topic. And again, this is what we do for a living and encourage other people to do for a living. And the three of us are good friends and trust one another. Um, 
and it still felt challenging at times. Uh, so you are not alone as you are trying to wrestle and unpack this. And if you need more help, reach out. Uh, we'd be happy to uh, connect you with a therapist as well. Um, Cause I have done a lot of work sitting with people in counseling around this topic. I love what you, you point to it just kind of just quickly is that you, you realize you, you pointed to the fact that that scripture is a, a living document that was a living story, part of a story, an arc of humanity, right? And at the time it was written, most women were married by 13, men maybe 15, 16, 17, and they died at age 35 on average. Talking about sexual purity and relationships and marriage um, is a very different construct if you're getting married at 13 and you die in your 30s than getting married in your 30s and dying in your 90s, which is where we are today. And, and the only reason I point that out is, I don't think scripture was intended to be a box that we're just trying to like, like look and figure out as if it's some big three-dimensional puzzle that we have to figure out. I think it's, I think it's great intent was to reveal that we're not alone and that we're in this bigger story of humanity that continues to unfold and that God is in the midst of us as, as, as a thread that connects all of us together and continues to reveal to us grace and redemption and love and, and care for each other. And so I say that to say that the same should be true about your sexuality and your relationship with your creator and with, your, with those whom you love is that you, you can't expect and I, that, that I should say you can't. These are ongoing conversations. These are living things. You're a living being and you are changing and evolving over time. And so are those all around you. So just keep talking, keep building, you know, relationships of trust where you can, you can be more true to yourself and unpack some of the things that you've experienced in your life and um, know that God's with you in the midst of all of it, that you're not alone. Amen. Thanks, Lindsay, Michael. Thanks, Justin, for editing and producing this episode and taking care of all the music and everything. We really appreciate you. Thanks, Justin. Uh, appreciate the conversation and uh, looking forward to the next episode. Everybody, thanks for listening. We appreciate it. Thanks for all the uh, reviews and the follows and the comments and everything on the... <laughs> Michael was laughing at me. Uh, we... <laughs> Uh, we do appreciate it, and uh, we, our, our hope and prayer is that, um, that you're doing well, uh, that, that you're listening to this, and that this can be a, a, a safe place for uh, thought and conversation, and hopefully spark some conversation with some people that you care about and are close to in your life. So um, we appreciate you taking the time to listen. Uh, this is the viewers like you moment of the PBS <laughs> intro. Uh, so thanks, and uh, we will see you next episode. Bye-bye.